If doctors told us that we'd made a breakthrough on COVID-19, we would rejoice. We'd feel hope that we could live our lives again, get back to work, back to doing what we want. Well, masks are a ticket to that freedom. We can help protect others and save lives by covering our noses and mouths, which is how the virus mainly spreads. Until there's a vaccine, grab the breakthrough that's already here. When we're out, it's masks on. A message to help keep you safe. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is the fabulous Forum in Los Angeles, the home of the Los Angeles Strings, one of 10 franchises in World Team Tennis. In 1976, more than 100,000 fans came to this magnificent arena to see the Strings. In its third year of operation, World Team Tennis had its greatest season ever. Attendance increased 67%, with nearly a million fans watching Team Tennis. That's more fans than attended all the Virginia Slims tournaments, all the WCT tournaments, and all the matches at Forest Hills combined. Truly a remarkable year for WTT. When the league opened its doors in 1974, few gave it any chance for survival, but how wrong they were. With skilled international players, streamlined scoring, professional officials, and a colorful rainbow court, and the exciting team concept all rolled into one, World Team Tennis has captured the imagination of fans throughout the nation. The 1976 All-Star match was in many ways the culmination of the long climb to the top for WTT. It epitomized the best in team tennis. The Eastern Division was made up of the New York Sets, the Pittsburgh Triangles, the Indiana Loves, the Boston Lobsters, and Cleveland Nets. In the West, it was the Phoenix Rackets, the Golden Gators, San Diego Friars, Hawaii Lays, and the Los Angeles Strings. There were some great stars in the league in 1976, such as the gifted Ilya Nastasi of Hawaii, Marty Reeson of Cleveland, and a superb young doubles team in Indiana, Mona Garant and Ann Kiyomura. But the cream of the crop gathered in Oakland July 10th for the All-Star match, the league showcase. Let's go back to that memorable Saturday night. Introducing the East, power-serving John Alexander of the Boston Lobsters. The hard-hitting young Martina Navratilova of the Cleveland Nets. The fast-rising Vitas Gerolitis from the Pittsburgh Triangles. Also from the Triangles, the incomparable Yvonne Gulligan. The graceful Virginia Wade from the New York Sets. The league's top-ranked singles player, Sandy Mayer of the Sets. Another big hitter from the Sets, Bill Dent. The coach of the East, Fred Stolle of the Sets. Now for the West All-Stars, led by Australian great Tony Roche of the Phoenix Rackets. The lovely Diane Fromholtz from the Los Angeles Strings. Another string star, the powerful Bob Lutz. The mighty midget from the Strings, Rosie Casals. The Indian great Vijay Armitage of the Strings. The unorthodox Francoise Dour of the Golden Gators. Her teammate with the Gators, Betty Stoba. The flying Dutchman, Tom Ocker of the Gators. And coaching the West, Brew McMillan of the Gators. Amidst this galaxy of stars, three shone the brightest. The magnificent Chris Everett of the Phoenix Rackets. The legendary Rod Laver of the San Diego Friars. And the first lady of the game, Billie Jean King of the New York Sets. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh, my God. Yet another attempt at a show. Here we go again. How are you, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. And, of course, this is Good Seats Still Available, our curious little journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you uh, for finding us. Welcome to the proceedings. 
And uh, at long last, we are finally going to get into a topic that has eluded us for almost now four years as we've been doing this silly little show. It's world team tennis. It's not because we haven't been interested or not interested or you know what I'm trying to say. Uh, it is because we've just struggled mightily to find sort of an adjunct into the topic. Uh, and luckily, we have found a uh, an excuse to do so this week. His name is Stephen Blush. You may know him uh, as a documentarian uh, for uh, in the music scene, punk rock in particular. If you've ever seen the uh, the movie American Hardcore, uh, great uh, a great uh, film, uh, sort of documenting the rise of punk in the United States and and frankly globally too. Uh, but uh, he is uh, back. Uh, uh, soon, uh, in the early part of uh, 2021, uh, with a movie. Uh, he calls it the Kentucky Fried Movie of Sports Films, uh, and it's called Bustin' Balls, and it's basically the story of World Team Tennis. Uh, and before that comes out, the book, uh, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, I think it's on November 24th, uh, from our friends at Feral House. Uh, it's called, of course, the same, Bustin' Balls. And uh, it is the story. It's a great book. I've I've had an advanced look at it, and uh, with pictures and uh, and great uh, uh, detail uh, about the pop culture phenomenon that was, and and still is actually in name, but uh, and has evolved over time. World Team Tennis, nineteen seventy four to seventy eight is is the is the period of time, uh, and uh, five seasons of such, and and it is a uh, it's a confluence of so many different themes. Uh, and topics and people, frankly, some of whom we've had on this very show. For example, Dennis Murphy, right? The serial entrepreneur in professional sports. He was, again, involved in all of this uh, with folks like Jordan Kaiser and Billie Jean King and Billie Jean King's husband at the time, Larry King. Not that Larry King, uh, the but the Larry King involved in in uh, setting this uh, this league up, Uh and uh, yes, a franchised approach to and a challenger league, a challenger maybe in quotes in this case, right? So not an established league World Team Tennis was going after, but more of like an establishment of how pro tennis was set up, uh, which uh, at the time and you know still uh, since uh, has uh, was focused on the individual play in a tour based setting. Uh, and and Lord knows the numbers of uh, different entities were trying to help professionalize that uh, that kind of circuit uh, beyond sort of the four big majors that everybody sort of knows and grew up with, right? Like the Wimbledons and the U.S. Opens of the world, uh, but stuff like World Championship Tennis, like the Lamar Hunt funded uh, effort, and uh, and the World uh, Tennis Association, and the Virginia Slims Tour, and you know a whole bunch of uh, folks trying to sort of professionalize uh, a circuit. Uh, but World Team Tennis was was not only uh, not that, but was uh, a bold and brash statement on a number of other fronts, too. Yeah, it's it's a team approach, right? Something that had never really been tried before, amateur or professionally or otherwise, right? Um, yeah, bringing uh, a little less fustiness, shall we say, a little bit more verve and, and excitement uh, to the presentation. Uh, Team-based play uh, with uh, uh, domiciled... Uh, squads in in different cities around the country big arenas mostly we'll get into some of the idiosyncrasies of that in a few moments uh raucous crowds crowds and uh encouraged to uh to cheer and boo and 
uh, whoop it up, if you will, versus sort of sitting on their hands and being quiet and shushing themselves uh, for various uh, points in play. Uh, co-ed, uh, a, a very breakthrough ideas, so one of which I think we've kind of perhaps explored with the International Volleyball Association with a couple of guests in previous episodes, but really uh, not uh, really kind of done in professional sports, this sort of co-ed uh, mutual team play. Uh, that was sort of a feature of world team tennis. And look, it was also uh, kind of uh, an extension of sort of gender equality, which was certainly a much, very much a thing in the 70s. You had the uh, Equal Rights Amendment sort of wending its way through various uh, state legislatures to uh, get on the ballot and potentially become uh, an amendment to uh, the Constitution. Uh, but uh, stuff like, uh, you know, the spectacle that was the Battle of the Sexes, Bobby Riggs and Bo uh, Billie Jean King, uh, that uh, gigantic uh, escapade uh, in the uh, Houston Astrodome, and world team tennis, very much uh, a, an outgrowth of the success of Billie Jean King's victory there uh, in that uh, uh, that event, uh, but also sort of a continuation of uh, the challenge and the fight to to gain equality for for women, not just in tennis, but in sports generally and frankly in society uh, overall. Um, and and world team tennis was was. A whole bunch of those things all wrapped up into one exciting, colorful, raucous package. And uh, in the mid-70s, it, uh, it was something for sure. Um, and we get into that with our guest this week, Stephen Blush, as we talk about Bustin' Balls. Well, that's the name, at least, of the book and the movie to come. But it's uh, frankly indicative, I think, of the the sensibility of what this world team tennis thing was all about. And uh, we are uh, grateful for finding Stephen and uh, and his stories that uh, he's going to unleash on the world. The book comes out on uh, November 24th from uh, Feral House. Uh, and the movie, we think, uh, comes out sometime in the early part of uh, 2021. And uh, we uh, look forward to finally delving into uh, the exciting story of the original World Team Tennis uh, and all kinds of people involved in this, uh, as we'll get into. That clip, by the way, you heard uh, was Dick Enberg, a big fan of tennis uh, and a big presenter of tennis uh, on NBC Sports, for sure, Wimbledon and uh, and uh, the French Open and those kinds of things. Uh, but he was also a big believer in the World Team Tennis uh, effort. And that was from a 1976 wrap-up of... Uh, the WTT All-Star Match. Uh, and um, you heard uh, maybe some evidence there of some of the names, some of the big names at the time in tennis, uh, some of the teams involved as well. And uh, we know that uh, the great Dig Enberg was uh, a big believer and presenter, I think, of some matches too. I think NBC covered a few of those matches, mostly in tape delay. I know a lot of matches were actually on the old HBO at the time. Uh, but that's where that uh, that clip and that... Uh, uh, that narration was from, and uh, hopefully it sets the tone nicely for what we're going to get into uh, with Stephen Blush in just a moment's time. Uh, before we get there, I want to say uh, thank you to uh, one of our great sponsors this week. And of course, uh, that's SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, our pal Dean Mitchell and his uh, merry uh, band of women and men in San Diego uh, have a wonderful selection, always evolving, always changing, uh, tremendously well-photographed uh, it's a better, stronger, and more well-lit and uh, trusted environment than the the various Ebays and, and sort of other 
you know, some sometimes shady kind of uh, uh, bazaars out there of, of stuff in the realm of sports uh, stuff and memorabilia. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is a book market early and often and uh, come and visit because there's all kinds of new stuff uh, that uh, Dean and his friends are bringing to the uh, to the table. And yes, World Team Tennis, uh, very well represented. In particular, there's some just tremendous, uh, excellent quality uh, versions of the uh, the, uh, the World Team Tennis game program. It was called Super Tiebreaker. And yeah, that was one of the innovations in the, in the play, by the way. And we'll get into some of that with Steven in a few moments. Uh, but there's just some great... Uh, 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 examples of that magazine from uh, from various matches across the original World Team Tennis um, uh, effort in 74 through 78. And uh, as you will see, when you click on any of those offerings, you'll see some great uh, images of what's inside those magazines as well. Uh, if you fancied yourself as a fan of the original classic World Team Tennis, you owe it to yourself to check out sportshistorycollectibles.com and just search up World Team Tennis and you will find a trove of great programs, the Super Tiebreaker official magazine programs, as well as just dozens and dozens and dozens of other great items and memorabilia from all kinds of great teams and leagues of the past. Uh, you will waste, uh, not waste, you will spend quality time, but it will be a rabbit hole, I assure you. Uh, but time well worth uh, spending as well as hopefully a couple of shekels worth spending for some of those items that uh, you just know that you at desperately need to have. And with the holidays approaching, what a great special gift to find for that old-time sports fan in your life at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And of course, we've got a promo code for you. And it's Good Seats. That's 15% off all of your purchases when you go to sportshistorycollectibles.com and use the promo code Good Seats. 15% off. Uh, as they say, come early and come often. And, and uh, thank you to Dean and all of his pals at uh, sportshistorycollectibles.com for their longtime sponsorship and patronage of this little show. And finally, we are now getting into World Team Tennis, the original version, hopefully the first of many conversations that we will have about this uh, enigmatic league. And uh, here it is, our conversation with Stephen Blush. Please, as always, enjoy. Let's start from sort of the, the beginning here. So uh, enlighten our audience uh, before we get into the topic at hand, uh, sort of what your professional and personal sensibilities are uh, that lead up to this story. You're, uh, you're kind of a creator by trade uh, from the music world and, and other places, right? Not necessarily sort of a proverbial sports historian or, or documentary. No, not at all. I am a, uh, I come out of music. I could, you know, I'm the guy with the wall of albums and could talk to you about who played bass on what album and written books about, uh, and films. I had a fil uh, wrote a book called American Hardcore that went to Sundance and, you know, that was probably my most popular book about punk rock. And I was always involved in various aspects of the music business um, but I have two sides to that is that my three main interests in life were, um, my athletics as a teenager, which I kind of abandoned, but never gave up my interest in pro sports. And, um, then there is, uh, the other side, which is I went to college for a 
uh, political science degree in Washington, D.C., and I worked on Capitol Hill. So. What, what, where, where was this? This is George Washington University in Washington, D.C. All right. Well, I'm, I'm a Georgetown guy, so we can, uh, we can probably trade some notes here about uh, well, our there collective experiences. Perfect. There yeah. you go. Um, so, yeah, you guys were the better school than ours, definitely. Uh, it's, all, it's all relative. It doesn't really much matter. What, frankly, the um, way I look at it is that once you're in D.C., it's like all bets are off, right? Because you're there. You're, you're in the jungle, if you will. Yeah, and when I got to D.C., there was this, like, crazy punk rock scene that was happening there with um, the Bad Brains and Minor Threat, who turned into Fugazi. And, um, you know, it it was just this crazy, um, really smart scene of kids who were talking about rebellion from a suburban middle-class perspective and the angst that that brings and that's how I was living. So really spoke to me. And um, anyway, so I wrote a book based on those memories. I've written about a half dozen books uh, in music. I uh, was a writer for a lot of top uh, rock magazines and worked with a lot of um, the nascent, uh, I guess what you would call grunge bands and rock bands and, you know, uh, the alternative rock bands. Um, So uh, anyway, so that's that's my lot. And then I was watching the MSG network in New York, which is Madison Square Garden. And they had found some recordings, uh, some video of a New York Apples versus Seattle Cascades match that they called uh, from 1978, and they had Billie Jean King uh, give commentary. And this is about eight years ago. And I was first fascinated by the whole 70s of it all, the haircuts, the clothes, uh, all that. But I got really enamored of this story when Billie Jean King would talk about Elton John, her good friend, and the song Philadelphia Freedom, kind of like about her when she played for the Philadelphia Freedoms in this uh, world team tennis where she was trying to, she was talking about uh, gender politics and uh, trying to um, educate the the working class and the idea of uh, having turning this elite sport of tennis into a um like a like a blue collar sport with yelling and cheap seats and beer and lack of decorum and making this scoring simplifying the scoring and uh she was talking about uh politics and she was talking about sports and she was talking about music and never did she talk about tennis. And uh, so it hit my key interests. Um, I was just blown away by the story and I went online and I was more blown away about how little information there was about it. Um, So it set me on this trek. And uh, none of my music friends really understand this, but, uh, you know, I just saw, I got sent, uh, the book is just uh, coming out uh, in about a month. 
and I saw one of the first copies and uh, it really made perfect sense for a book like this right now. It's called Bustin' Balls, which is really what Billie Jean and the original Nine and the original Virginia Slims, it all kind of ties into this thing of gender equality through the court, through the tennis court. And um, uh, this whole kind of, um, oh, so it's Bustin' Balls, and the subtitle of the book is Pro Sports, Pop Culture, Progressive Politics. And um, it's kind of where Billie Jean, kind of like the American hardcore punk scene that I talk about was, it was very influential at the time. It was way too ahead of its time. And like I said, it makes perfect sense today. It was so radical that it makes perfect sense today. And Billie Jean was pushing, before they used the word progressive, she was pushing that agenda into into sports and blending it with pop culture. Like, you know, she's talking about the 1978 New York Apples. So they used to be called the New York Sets because that rhymed with Jets and Nets. I remember, um, I remember the radio jingle. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's very good. You know that. So anyway, so um, uh, the New York Apples were... Um, oh, so anyway, when I, in that discussion about the New York Apples, you know, she's talking about her teammate Vetus Gerolaitis hanging out at Studio 54 and dancing with Margaret Trudeau and, you know, like this whole kind of like you know, Andy Warhol kind of story of uh, New York decadence in the 70s. And it all comes together. Oh, and, and of course, Renee Richards played in the league. And then, you know, I start delving into this stuff and I learned things like in the final season, the number one uh, mixed doubles team in the league was... John Lucas, the, the basketball player, the number one dr- pick in the 1973 draft um, with his whole um, tragic story. Uh, but he was the number two black tennis player in America after Arthur Ashe. But of course, he had this lucrative basketball career and this love of tennis. So he signed with the WTT for a couple of years. And in the final year of the league, when he played for the New Orleans Nets, it was he and Renee Richards were the top mixed doubles team of world team tennis in 1978. Right. So you get, it's just so deep and so weird. And, um, you know, uh, there was a team from the Soviet Union, right? This is right after the bicentennial, 1977. The bicentennial is, of course, 1976 this big outpouring of Americana and love of country. And what does Billie Jean do the next year? But she brings the Soviet Union national team into her league to barnstorm 44 games season. Simply known as the Soviets. And actually that was, that was almost very sort of parallel to what uh, the World Hockey Association was doing, obviously trying to get promotion for themselves, right? But uh, bringing over... Uh, a Soviet team. And I think even if I'm not mistaken, there was even some pre MISL indoor soccer uh, attempts too. I think the Philadelphia uh, Adams, 
the Philadelphia Adams, correct? Where we've talked about this with the founder, co-founder of the MISL, actually. In yeah, there's some crossover between um, yeah. the Adams and the uh, Freedoms in 1974. And there was also the Philadelphia Bell of the World Football League that year as well. For sure. Who, I, from what I remember the story, is that they won, I think it was a Monday night, they drew 75,000 people to RFK Stadium or JFK Stadium, whatever it was called. And uh, then they never drew anyone after that. Well, and, and, and uh, I would say 98% of them uh, got in for free. Uh, but yeah, that, yeah. that's a whole well, other... You know, with World Team Tennis, of course, um, uh, when they debuted in... 19- I think we said that this uh, was a five-year league, 1974 to 1978, this original incarnation of... World Team Tennis. Um, so Billie Jean King goes to play for her friend um, who is, uh, what was his name? Oh, uh, Dick. Uh, Dick Butera. Dick Butera, correct. So Dick Butera was the guy he, um, he built a bunch of resort towns. I think he built uh, Myrtle Beach or one of the I could be wrong about the town but it, he and he also was a developer of ski resorts but he was uh, the guy who it's not in the Billie Jean King in fact I spoke to him about it he was kind of upset about it um, in the um, the Billie Jean King movie that came out a couple of years ago um, he's not even mentioned and apparently she she trained at his house uh, for the entirety of the match, and uh, he was um, uh, oh, kind of the one who negotiated the, the whole the, deal. The because the, the big she, battle of the sexes match with Bobby Riggs, you're talking about, right? Yeah, correct. The battle of the yeah. So the practicing for the battle of the sex. I'm sorry. Yeah, the bad the the um, training for the battle of the sexes she did at. Dick Butera's house. And um, well, well, that's, there's, some, that's, there's also some weird part about this that um, Dick Butera was telling me that this was also at the same time as the Ali Frazier Thrilla in Manila fight. Or, or was it maybe the one in Africa? I can't remember, but it was like one of those like really famous fights and that was all somehow going through Dick Butera business as well at the same time. Well, it's what, also, what was it's the also, one in, what was the Ali Frazier fight in Africa? Yeah. Well, it's also important to remember, I guess, for context, right. That the battle of the sexes, right. I almost at the table for this because this in 1973, right. We, we, in and of itself, a spectacle that hopefully we have a, a separate episode uh, on and stuff. Right. But you're sort of, and this is interesting because you're, you're mentioning, all of these sort of things sort of coalescing in this world team tennis. I mean, I think just on its face, right, this idea of just shaking up the, uh, the establishment of, of tennis, right? Well, we'll get into this maybe in a, in a few moments, but, you know, the world, uh, the WTA, the Lamar Hunt uh, thing to professionalize uh, yeah. uh, players and, and get them on the circuit and stuff, right? The, 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 uh, the teamification, if you will, of, of a sport that, uh, really wasn't sort of uh, a team play, right? Just just the innovations, uh, encouraging crowd participation, if you will. The, the- yeah, well, what's, what's really fascinating that I was able to figure out was that 
you know, all the alternative sports leagues, the football leagues, the basketball leagues, they're, they're, be- they're essentially the same game. They're, they're, they're selling you just a different version of the same game with a few tweaks. This was actually, uh, world team tennis was actually a new sport. It was actually like the way it was constructed had never been done before. Right. And itself, just, just on that alone, right, that's, that's worthy of exploration and, and investigation and uh, checking it out and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And the colors and it just, you know, completely challenging the convention of what, quote unquote, professional tennis was. But you're, you're hinting at, and maybe this is a good place to maybe circle around, is it, it, it had many other layers to it. And in, in many respects, you, you could probably center that and god forbid someday we'll have her on the show right but billy jean king you know was sort of the vortex of multiple things not just her desire to shake up the sport of tennis but what she represented and ultimately literally and figuratively came out to become um as well as you know being a, a a role model for for females in pro sports and in tennis uh and in society uh, and you know, so this is this is a comet, if you will, a white hot comet of time that uh, represented, and as I think you're sort of hinting at, a lot of different things all in one one big multicolored package. Uh, the sports thing was almost just the outer wrapping, if you will, of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was conceptual. I mean, I mean, the owners obviously were just like businessmen, most of them. But uh, the, the uh, context, the, um, the milieu that they allowed themselves to invest in uh, was, was really above people's heads. Um, I, kind of, you know, you're, we were talking originally about my roots in the music scene and kind of where music and sports, uh, where like punk rock and sports meet is with skateboarding. And I saw a lot of parallels in, in what Billie Jean was doing with World Team Tennis with um, the Dogtown documentary, if you know about skateboarding. Sure. And so I kind of feel like Bustin' Balls is part um, Dogtown and it's part uh, Loose Balls, the book about the ABA. Um, uh, just this kind of like in their words, the story of this train wreck that they, this comet slash train wreck that they all participated in. Um, So uh, yeah, I mean, I think this book is, uh, this story operates on so many different levels. I mean, so, so that's, you know, I think getting back to your original question, that's kind of what brought me here was that um, my love of pro sports uh, my love of politic, political discourse, and and anything that connects back to rock and roll, you know, <laughs> um, you know, uh, the band Bread, who has pretty bad connotations, if you know your seventies nostalgia. Sure. Um, actually, like their first record was kind of rocking, like a lot of bands that like they make a rocking first record and then they changed their music and you never even knew that they did that other stuff before. But anyway, so Bread's first record is almost like a, an electric Neil Young record. You know, it's kind of like that. 
And they wrote this song called Mother Freedom, which was about Billie Jean. And they would crank that song like every game uh, before every Philadelphia Freedoms game. And uh, she, um, uh, you know, it was like, the, you talk, we were talking before about the uh, Philadelphia Bell of the World Football League drawing 75,000 people for their first game and then going out of business by the end of the year. And uh, the Philadelphia Freedoms, uh, of course, because they had Billie Jean, they were the debut match of World Team Tennis. Actually, you t- sent me the Twitter about this was the anniversary of that first match a few months ago I think that was May 8th or something like that yeah yeah (laughs) um so there was so much fanfare there and so many like movie stars and Johnny Carson had bought a part of the um Los Angeles Strings and Bill Cosby was involved in this team in Philadelphia because he was from Philadelphia uh and he was a big uh black tennis player as well. So uh, lots of movie stars, VIPs all showed up. You know, they drew like, you know, depending what you read, somewhere between ten and 12,000 people for the first match. And by the third match, the Freedoms were drawn about 700 people in a 16,000-seat arena. And Billy, you know. So I sent Billy Jean the... Uh, when I started on this project, I, you know, I got in touch with Billie Jean just to make sure, like, I'm not, like, causing any problems or, you know, like, I don't want to get sued for this cool thing that I'm working on. And um, they were, they were cool. Um, They were very skeptical. Uh, I sent her two chapters. One of them was on the Philadelphia Freedoms. Uh, It was, 12 pages of text and 135 sources. So it was pretty undeniable that I was completely telling the truth about the Philadelphia freedom story. I'm sure that they don't really want to talk about, which is, you know, the Philadelphia freedoms went out of business after that first year. You know, so uh, and but, she had put her heart and soul into this. Sure, but iconic, right? For lots of other reasons, like the. Oh yeah, yeah. No, so they they got it. They understood the the, the seriousness of this this work. You know, I really, you know, uh, you'll see in the book that there's about uh, over two thousand sources. You know, I went through newspapers and found found online newspapers and found quotes and facts and you know all that stuff is true you know i mean within reason you know so uh you can't sugarcoat it you know this was kind of like a crash and burn story um you're talking about chicago um i know in other incarnations of world team tennis they've had a a chicago team here and there but uh, the first one was the Chicago Aces. And um, they were, um, the guy, there were these two brothers that owned the, uh, the Kaiser brothers. Um, at one point running the league, there was a king. Here, here running the league was a king, Larry King, a Kaiser, Jordan Kaiser, 
of the Chicago Aces and Frank Fuhrer of the uh, Pittsburgh Triangle. So you had a Kaiser, a Fuhrer, and a King. The Kaiser brothers were big in construction and they, uh, and also involved in uh, tennis. And um, they uh, owned a place called the Lakeshore Racquet Club, which is still there in some form. And I just, uh, that's, I just drove by it about two weeks ago. Yeah. And that's where they held the matches. And um, it was the smallest uh, arena because uh, it wasn't an arena. It was just a, a tennis club. It's actually where uh, world team tennis ended up going. It was kind of like something that takes place at tennis clubs. But um, they, uh, anyway, that's a, a particularly large tennis facility. Um, but they, uh, they had crowds of 270 crowds of, uh, I think they, they had a crowd of 68 once maybe. Um, so. Well, this, this sounds like a lot like, and, 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 you know, we've had Dennis Murphy on this, this show. Yeah. Uh, before talking about the ABA and the WHA, we really haven't gotten, we never got the chance Hopefully we will get another chance, knock on wood, uh, to get into some of his other exploits, such as World Team Tennis, which he was involved in, and and hustling just like he was uh, in both of those other leagues, right? This sounds a lot like the playbook from these other, you know, attempts at either sticking it to the man of the, the, the pro sports world uh, with franchises and people with similar dreams and, you know, whatever it takes, right, to get... Uh, a franchise uh, stood up in a, in a market that uh, made sense for the league, right. To uh, in circular fashion, convince others to join the league as well. Right. And if it takes a, shall we say an extended tennis facility, i.e. not sort of a, a major arena, like in other cities to, to make Chicago work. Well, by golly, let's just, let's just, blink and and do that uh because it's a chicago franchise for god's sakes but right to what effect i like this there was one part when they debuted the team the first home match they had a cocktail party before the game so the band so like they the team didn't drink while they were there but it was like free drinks for everyone so i think Basically, the Lakeshore was like giving free drinks to free drinks and food to everybody. So those people would end up being a large part of the of the uh, audience. But the, the, so goal, bad. the goal, though, right, was to, to make tennis sort of a big time arena thing yes. and, and a sport, if you will, a spectator sport along the lines of any other indoor, or frankly, outdoor sport for that matter. Make it fun. Make it interesting. Uh, make it uh, uh, worthy of cheering, literally and figuratively, uh, uh, without sort of the, uh, shall we say, traditional conventions of of all white in terms of uh, uh, uniform, if you will, and 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 being quiet and respectful and silent during the. Uh, this is almost this was rock and roll uh, tennis, if you will. No, yeah, it was. It was total rock and roll tennis, and that's that's what sold me on this story, you know. And um, I. Uh, you know, I sometimes wonder if it's a little above people's heads to, 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 to even go <laughs> to spend a couple of years no, working no, I, on such a project. I, I was going to say, no, it, it actually, frankly, to your credit, I don't know if it is too much of a stretch because 
I mean, if you think about it, you put it in context, which is where I'm sure the book, and, and I'm assuming movie to come too, yes? Yes, yes, the okay. movie to come next year. So and I, I can imagine what the soundtrack hopefully will be like that, assuming licensing. Yeah, it's very rock and roll. It's kind of like uh, the Kentucky Fried Chicken of tennis movies. There you go. Uh, or the Kentucky Fried movie, for that matter. Uh, the Kentucky the, Fried movie. That's what I'm trying. I'm sorry. The Kentucky Fried. <laughs> that's awful. The Kentucky Fried movie of tennis movies. That's no, why not? There you go. But um, but it it does. It it seems to me that I mean, on so many different levels, right? It's in the middle of the '70s. It's in the sports world. It is one of seemingly dozen uh, challenger leagues or new brash ideas and concepts and stuff. Right? There seem no no sports ideas seem to be silly enough. Uh, to get out there and, and, and give it the old college try. Um, it seemed uh, from a, a visual perspective, right? The uniforms, uh, the, the, the court itself, uh, yeah. multicolored, um, the music, you know, whether it was intentional or just by consequence, right? The, the Mother Freedom song or obviously Philadelphia Freedom and, and Elton John. Um, it just, it all just, and then, and then you layer on top of that, right? Sort of the, the equality issue, right? Let's, let's remember yeah. too that the ERA was still something that p- could have become a constitutional amendment. It was still alive. Yep. Uh, the battle of the sexes with with Billie Jean herself as a, uh, a, a you know I, I'm a, a reluctant or maybe on purpose a, a female figure, yeah. um, and and, and the, the the manner in which the play was happening, right? To to make that play equal, right? To bring yeah the the, the yeah. feature match of every night was the mixed doubles with men and women of on on equal footing on and equal pay you know so it was very radical they had um they had insurance plans they had pensions they had i mean i, I can't imagine that, that would have been a good investment but they were the the the, the thought was really um 30 years ahead of its time 40 well, years ahead of its time, yeah. When you saw this, you know, this sort of retrospective and this, what, what were you thinking this story was? And, and kind of as you got into it, what did you find it really to become? I mean, obviously you got the, the, the proverbial rock and roll kind of ethos to this, but yeah. what did you think you knew about this thing? And then maybe what did you sort of discover along the way in this first four or five years of its original existence? Because it really did make an impact albeit short-lived. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the one thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is, um, uh, the one thing that comes to mind is that, like, I see it on this level and all the participants of it don't really see it that way. They just see it as, like, a business that they invested in. And they're usually embarrassed about how much money they lost or how much time they lost on the tour or or something like that. I think I have like more enthusiasm for it than they do. I think it will take something like this book uh, for them to embrace it. Um, it's like they didn't r- really know what they were doing. Most of them were just kind of doing it for a paycheck. Um, you know, and then a lot of people would like quit the league because they would, uh, you know, they, they couldn't handle the yelling. They couldn't, you know, they, they would break down. Uh, one guy who broke down in the league was this guy, Jeff Boroviak, who played for the Golden Gators, which was the team from the Golden Gate Bridge of the Bay Area. 
played at Oakland Arena. And uh, he um, was, uh, I think the the line from the general manager was that uh, Jeff doesn't have um, the the mental balance or the right mental balance for this team, something like that. Um, and he is famous because his friend on the professional tour, his best friend on the professional tour was a Danish player named Torben Ulrich. And he had a son who started a band and he lent them money for their first demo. And that band was Metallica. So Lars Ulrich's dad was friends with Jeff Borowiak. <laughs> that, and that is the history of the funding of the first uh, Metallica demo. In fact, I told a couple of guys in the band that story, and they didn't believe me until they talked to their compadre who, who told them that was the truth. Um, so um, I don't know if I fully answered your question, but um, I think... Um, I I think what was interesting about this story to me was the more I dug, the more I found. I mean, it was just like a trove of weirdness and uh, missed ex, uh, missed expectations. Is that is that is that the right way to say it? Sure. Un, unmet expectations. Um. So it's uh, kind of like. Uh, you know, it's the combination of this great idea and the train wreck that it was. And if you participated in the train wreck, it might not have been very funny. It might have been kind of painful. Well, no, and, and look, that's that is something that we we certainly uh, get involved with 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 all kinds of exploits. And I think you know, look, I, I don't think I think people, especially who've gone on to other things in their career, or they you know they feel it was. Uh, either a failure or a disappointment and they want to move on and, and they choose not to look back on it. And then, okay, that that's mentally probably very healthy. Right. Um, yeah. But you know, there's also, uh, these also were the seeds of, and you just mentioned one interesting little story, right. Of other things that came out of it, right. In, in many respects, things that, that don't go well, wind up becoming lessons for, uh, for perhaps how you, how you do eventually succeed case in point. Knock on wood. At some point, uh, hopefully, we get to talk to Jeannie Buss very soon. She, the uh, recent uh, uh, winner uh, as the owner of the right. Los Angeles Lakers, right? She Another kind of ring. Got her first uh, experience through her dad. Her dad was very involved with the uh, the LA Strings, and then she sort of kept that uh, flame sort of going in the second incarnation of this. Like Bob Kraft uh, got his first uh, professional sports kind of taste, if you will. Uh, with this first go around of this league. I, I just, you know, I, maybe we sort of circle around, let, let's maybe talk about the tennis part for just a second. I mean, um, I think it's important to kind of maybe remember not only the battle of the sexes in 73 as sort of a pretext for this, but uh, it's also the, uh, the, the, the nature of what professional tennis was uh, for both the men, the men and the women. I mean, this, there was a battle, if you will, for the soul of, of that in, in, and the method of that was a tour, right? Individuals going on tour and, you know, there was world championship tennis, which was the Lamar Hunt thing. Uh, yeah. There was ATP, I think, uh, there was, you know, there was sort of a battle for that. But interestingly, there was also 
uh, I don't know how much you get into this in the, in the background of the story, but there was also, uh, if I remember correctly, a, uh, a, a fledgling team league that was uh, kind of rattling around as the WTT was getting off the ground too. Called right, right, yeah, yeah. right. So it's interesting that, that this was not, that there were numerous entities thinking about how do we make tennis more of a thing yeah, because tennis was the number one sport. And remember, it was like the number one or two sport in America in terms of what people played in like uh, circa 1970. So, um, yeah, and money was really just starting to come into play. I mean, obviously, there were purses for the big, the big four, uh, the Grand Slam yeah. events, right? But, but the tour idea was relatively new in the, in the 60s and the early 70s. And, you know, the big money really had yet start, uh, to start to flow. But this is also very interesting too. We've seen this in, believe it or not, the world of bowling and and yeah. the world of golf, right? Where this, I saw the bowling one recently. Yeah. yeah how well, do you how do you professionalize this thing? I mean, is is it a is it a tour by individual or is there a team concept to this? And to yeah. me, that's what uh, the, the 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 interesting stuff around this is. Yes, this could be a team concept, and then you layer in all the other stuff. But the tennis- yeah, well, the, the thing about world team tennis, which just stands all, stands apart from any any of these endeavors, past, present, or future, is the political slash gender politics of it all. And um, it's so radical that somebody who's running a, a, a business of any kind, let alone a you know a sport, is is thinking like this. You know, um, one thing you were also asking me about, like, what I learned was, like, there was real rivalry on, on the Virginia Slims the, in the, in, uh, and on the women's tour. I mean, there was basically this triangle of Billie Jean King, Margaret Court, and Virginia Wade. And the last two were Brits, and they did not like her you know, and they would go out their way to beat her. And it was nasty. And a lot of those rival, and uh, they became friends later, but that early Martina Everett rivalry that everyone who follows tennis kind of knows about started out. It was like Chris Everett did not take well to it because she was getting pounded every match by Martina, you know? So um, there was like definitely a lot of, uh, you know, personalities. And, and there was also the one where um, a couple players joined the league and got their money and kind of mailed it in. Uh, one of them was Ily Nastasi. And uh, he was such a crazy guy. At, at one point, uh, he was playing for the team in Honolulu, the last ever professional sports team in Honolulu. They actually were somehow connected to the Hawaiians of the World Football League. Um, there was some connection in ownership at one point or something like that. But uh, there's a story where uh, the Hawaii Lays, named after the Lay Garland, L E I, um, <laughs> great name for a team. Uh, well, you know, you, know they as, they played. You, you know where they started as, right? What's they- that? They, they were the, before they became, they moved, if you will, to Hawaii. They were officially going to be the San Diego Swingers. That's right, the San Diego Swingers come so, swing with us. Yes, that well, whole, uh, yeah. so, and there were only two people who ever made money in the history of the league. It was the guy who had traded the 
San and the San Diego Swingers, which was the guy, Dr. He was an orthodontist and he owned the team that Wilt Chamberlain played for in the ABA. Um, his name escapes me, but he was the one who made uh, Leonard Bloom. Leonard Bloom, very good. Yeah, so Dr. Leonard Bloom was the was one person who made money when he sold his San Diego Swingers to become the Hawaii Lays because they couldn't they had the rights to Ily Nastasi but couldn't work it out. And the other one was uh, Gary, okay, uh, who ran the ABA and the WHA for a while, Gary Davidson. Yeah, Davidson, so I, of course. Is that the correct name? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Gary Davidson, because of his friendship with, um, uh, who did we just speak about before? Dennis the guy, Murphy. Uh, Murphy. And Dennis Murphy, of course. Yeah. So uh, as kind of a, Dennis Murphy kind of hooked him up and gave him the Phoenix team. And he sold it to Baltimore for, I think, six times what he paid for it. Um, so those were the only two people who made money on the leagues, the, one who, the ones who got out. Well, um, look, and, that, and that's not unique to world team tennis, right? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the sort of creating and selling of franchises uh, before, uh, you know, getting out, uh, as Herb Gluck uh, titled his book in the, about the, uh, the World Football League, uh, getting out while it getting good. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So there's a lot of crossover with the ownership of all these teams of the ABA, um, the Denver Rackets uh, were started um, as like a, a team for the owners of the Denver Nuggets. So they had a name that kind of sounded a little bit like it too. And uh, uh that was the ownership of the anyway. So the owners of the ABA Denver Nuggets, ABA Denver Nuggets, uh, owned the Denver team that went out of business in one year. That team moved to Phoenix, uh, and the owner, the guy who brought him to Phoenix, was Reggie Jackson. And then Reggie Jackson lost, I think, a million dollars one season with the team, which is just you know so much money back then. Um, and then he stepped away and the other, his co-partner, the owner signed Chris Everett and actually, uh, you know, well, there were, there were some, there fair was showing with that. some top talent in, in, in world team. And I'm just, it's also interesting too, because I get the sense that uh, uh, there was a bit of a choice that, that players had to make, right with respect to the the pro tours that they were on or or starting to get involved with uh or and or playing this world team tennis thing it wasn't sort of i guess oh the- it, it was ugly it was really ugly it was um the the european federations wanted to destroy this league they saw it as a threat to their league um in fact in the first season uh jimmy connor's who played for the Baltimore team and Yvonne Gulagong, who played for the Pittsburgh team, both won the first leg of the Grand Slam, which is a big deal. But they were banned from playing the French and the Italian because of their participation with uh, World Team Tennis. 
Um, so yeah, they, they went out to destroy it. They did. Um, and basically that was, that was one of the big things that killed them as well. I mean, that, uh, they stopped, they, they would uh, take a break for Wimbledon, but that didn't seem to appease anybody. Uh, and, um, that's kind of where, where they, uh, I think in retrospect, didn't stand a chance because, you know, there was no subculture to tennis. You know, I think this, I, I've been kind of doing some research of what's out there for press for this book. And uh, there's a couple things that kind of strike me as kind of subculture-like um, in tennis. There's a magazine called Racket, which is kind of like, um, like, uh, like outsider tennis, you know, like, like you're not an insider. You're not an elite, you know, you're, uh, of the people, you know, that's what they write about. Billy Jean loves this magazine for that reason. You know, and there's a couple of them. There's a couple of websites that are kind of similar too. And there's all these tennis and other sports, uh, podcasts, which are, you know, have an activist side to it, of course, that we all know. So, um, you know, I feel like I'm bringing something to, to the sports fan that's really valuable. I think it's um, really kind of makes you understand a little bit better the world we live in and how we got here. Why, why do you think it was so attractive for that period of time? I mean, obviously it had some pockets of success. It, it was some uh, national television coverage. I know Dick Enberg would sure. call a couple of matches for NBC, I think. Yep, yep. yep. Early days of uh, of HBO back when, you know, seven people had cable. Yep. Um, but, but it was if visual. If you could ever find that footage, anything that they did with Julie Heldman, uh, whose mother was Gloria Heldman, who started the Virginia Slims, um, I mean, it's unbelievable. And I can't remember the the male commentator, but they're just, it's so seventies. It's like bawdy. It's like loud. It's weird. It's the kind of personal attacks at times. Uh, so why do you think it didn't ultimately kind of make it past, a, a, you know, a couple of years in it? I mean, was the audience for this kind of hard to kind of pin down? I mean, you got feedback. Yeah, there was, there was, you know, players. You, do you appeal to the? There was no, there was no real crowd for this. I mean, they really thought that, like in Chicago. I mean, the Chicago Aces thought that they would be able to draw Bears and Blackhawk fans to the Lakeshore. You know. Um, yeah, so there's clearly an element there, right? Especially of the the entrepreneurs behind it, right? That that this would be literally a a draw during the summer, I guess. Most of these matches, right? Yeah. Uh, that would be equivalent to uh, going to a, a more classic sort of traditional sporting event, and and tennis sort of rockified, if you will. That 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 could maybe I guess appeal to the casual fan too. Yeah, they. I think um, I started reading some stuff that they would they would do these uh, focus groups and studies in the last couple years, and they basically found in the end they were drawing the same tennis fans. And maybe that's the indictment that they really weren't able to cross cross over, you know. But if you thought that Steelers fans were going to go see the triangles, or if you thought 
you know, Dick Butka Bears fans were going to go see, uh, you know, go see a tennis league. It, it, you know, it just, that part of it wasn't going to work, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems, it, it seems because like... Because it wasn't embraced by the tennis establishment, it wasn't embraced by the media. You well, know what I mean? So That's interesting, right? Because it, it almost feels to me like, like World Team Tennis was almost designed not to be appealing to the sort of classic... I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because it feels to me like, okay, the, the tennis fan certainly would be sort of a, a preloaded a target base, right, for at least, hey, check it out, right? You understand tennis, and this is more of a fun, and, and or you would see it as a sacrilege, and you would, you would find it distasteful. But right. then also to broaden it, right, it's, it's the sort of average sports fan. So maybe you're not a tennis fan, or maybe you, you were put off by it, or frankly, you just never found tennis accessible because of whatever socioeconomic or whatever uh, sensibility that you might have. And, and this was kind of a way, I mean, with the the, the the multiple uh, games, uh, the the crowd noise, it became more of an accessible sort of spectacle and a point system that was at least you could follow, um, you know. It, it, but it, I guess it, it, while trying to attract maybe different sort of uh, branches, I guess of sports fan or spectacle, uh, they they maybe appealed to to no one in in the end because it was so unique and different. Yeah, I mean, the co- it's it's not even close, but I, I would kind of say what happened with World Team Tennis is kind of like what happened with um, ABA basketball in that they uh, they came up with the three-point shot and they came up with the slam dunk and all that kind of stuff. But And they came up with so – had some really good ideas. And if you look at the NBA now, it's far more like ABA 1976 than it was – NBA even 10 years ago um so yeah it's just like it's kind of you know there's always musicians that like change the world because far more successful musicians heard them and and were influenced and or imitated them so uh I think that's kind of like a microcosm of what was wrong with world team tennis um I think Billie Jean thought that the players would embrace it. And there was a, there was a section of players, your kind of militant, uh, more militant, like your uh, Rosie Casals or, um, you know, who's the announcer at the, the Battle of the Sexes or, um, I don't know, like, uh, you know, Pam Austin was a real feminist back then. Uh, but you know, a lot of it was Margaret Court and Yvonne Gulagong and, you know, these kind of very, you know, conservative women and, um, uh, you know, there, and there were tons of, yeah, young, beautiful tennis players in like the shortest dresses like ever seen. Um, uh, you know, and there was like that kind of stuff, but it just, and I think they thought that would help cross it over but you know it wasn't something you could watch on you know as you are correct that there were uh occasional national broadcasts but in general you know if you couldn't i looked in the tv listings of the newspapers back 
from 1974. You couldn't go, you couldn't watch these games. I think there were of this original 16 teams, I think two had local TV contracts. It, it, the whole thing was, in, in the end, was Billy Jean kind of fighting the world. You know, and uh, the league, from what I could tell, was set up by Billy and Larry to kind of extend her career because she was 32 and her knees were starting to go uh, when they came up with this idea that they actually announced at the Battle of the Sexes. And it started, you know, six months after, you know, so. um, But, you know, so a lot of it was to kind of prolong her career and prolong her place in the spotlight. And she was on television and, you know, all those kind of things. But people wanted to know about Billie Jean. They didn't care about world team tennis. You know, the New York sets or the New York apples, I mean, they lost, you know, they were, they lost over a million dollars a year. The LA, the LA uh, strings are the same thing. Jerry Buss said it was, you know, the most expensive school I could have ever gone to learn how to be a sports owner, you know. Uh, uh, Robert Kraft took a, a franchise that had basically, you know, kind of failed its first year. And within a year, he had Martina Navratilova and was able to compete for the last few years in the league. Um, and... Uh, that was he and his late wife um, basically had this kind of family operation and they were kind of beloved in the world team tennis community. Um, so uh, everyone had, you know, there are a lot of people who, uh, and you mentioned Jenny Buss, who was like 14 when um, her father would let her sit in on the board meetings and the marketing meetings and just have her absorb it all. And that was, uh, that was her start. You know, that 1978 season, uh, he basically, he, there were 10 teams in the league in the final season. Four of them, no, six of them were somehow owned or co-owned by Jerry Buss and his partner. And um, he signed Chris Everett and he signed Ily Nastasi. And he made Ily Nastasi his player coach, which is unbelievable. And uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't for a lack of of, uh, of talented players, right? Like Chris Everett, Betty Stover. I mean, you you had a lot of Bjorn Borg was. I mean, there was there were you know these were some of the biggest names in the game. Yeah, Bjorn um, Borg went with his fiance, and they spent a year in Cleveland. I mean, can you imagine Bjorn Borg at Cleveland? I mean, you know that guy was the ultimate. Like Ted Blonde, beautiful tennis, European tennis elite. And, you know, Martina Navratilova, at one time they had uh, Bjorn Borg and Martina Navratilova on the Cleveland Nets. And uh, Cleveland traded her to, 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 uh, Jerry, to uh, Robert Kraft, and the rest is history. Um, Martina was like, you can't, I can't move to America, risk my whole, risk everything and end up in Cleveland in the seventies. 
you know, which was like the ugliest city at that time. You know, I, I, I am just. I am just fascinated, though, that, that and this uh, the I think the only other league that I can think of off the top of my head that would that even came close to trying to equate males and females in the play was uh, a more even ill more ill fated uh, league, uh, which has a connection with Will Chamberlain. You mentioned him before; he's part of the, the Leonard Bloom uh, experience, trying to help. Yep bring players into this mix was the international volleyball association yeah i don't know too much about that i mean i know that it existed but i don't really know too much about uh, well, it was, the, the idea was very it was it was exceedingly co-ed right uh yeah. which as we've talked about in a couple of other episodes was a part of its charm as well depending on the, how you looked at the 70s and, the, and all the the swing in the times that that was but um but you know it, you you mentioned it before at the top of the show right so it was ahead of its time on a lot of different fronts. And I would say probably first and foremost was this idea of uh, equality and, and evenness of the sexes in their ability to play and, and sort of harmonizing that, um, yeah. but ahead of its time, right? And, 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 and arguably maybe still ahead of its time. I mean, you've, you know, we've come a long way yet, you know, uh, there's a WNBA, for example, really great ex- example of, of, uh, you know, now 20 plus years or so of, of top tier women's professional basketball, right? But still, you know, gets its knocks. It still doesn't draw the male fan per se. Uh, it's always the questions about whether it's as good uh, as the play as good. Are the, the, the competitors as good as the male, their male, male, counter, male counterparts? Um, but it's also interesting too, right? How, um, how this idea of world team tennis still lives on, right? Obviously in a different form, and it's gone through a couple of different iterations. Billie Jean King still very much part of and associated with it. Yeah. Um, obviously a much smaller uh, kind of footprint, but but this idea doesn't sort of go away. It's almost like there's been a somewhat of a mini renaissance, I guess, of or an appreciation perhaps. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, I think everyone, uh, well, first of all, there's the thing about uh, WTT's, Revival being the first successful um, uh, sport during the COVID pandemic um, to actually complete a season. Um, yes, they had a bubble down in uh, West Virginia. Yes. Right. So at the Briar Club, which is like one of these kind of like places in the middle of nowhere. But um, that, that, that was, uh, that's kind of like the, I think that's the, if I'm not mistaken, it's the sixth incarnation because the incarnation from 2017 is a is it's now different it's now run by different people um i think what this is is uh people wanting to associate with billy jean they want their name associated with billy jean so there's always going to be somebody to back it up but now it but now it's not like um uh if you go to a world team tennis match now, they, they tell there's a whole code of behavior, you know, what they'll throw you out for doing, you know? So I'd say that's pretty far from what they were originally doing. The, the one thing with the women was uh, pretty amazing. Like uh, Clark, Clark Grabner was a, famous uh, some pretty famous player of the 60s and he uh 
was the coach of the Cleveland team and he got his wife, the mother of his children. He worked out some special dispensation in the league so he could draft her because she was a, a pretty solid pro. And then they got divorced. So he traded her for a young blonde. And then um, of course, Raz Reed and Kerry Melville shared unisex locker rooms as members of the 1974 um, uh, Boston uh, Lobsters, and they've been married since 1975. And then there's like Marita Redondo, who played for the LA Strings, and she was 18 years old. And she hooked up with uh, a guy on her team who was like married and almost 30 years old. And she had to leave halfway through the season because she was pregnant. So, um, you know, it was like a whole other, you know, there's all this stuff going on because of gender equality to, you know, uh, people on the same, uh, you know, uh, you know, intersexual relations was, was on the board of this, of running uh, world team tennis uh, franchise. Well, you also, I mean, uh, it's for gender equality too, you also had uh, uh, the vanguard uh, in uh, with Renee Richards, right? Uh, oh, yeah. So they tried for a few years to get her into the league, and there was real blowback, especially from some of the players, especially some of the women players. You know, they were like, you know, I'm playing this, this monster, you know, this like, I don't even know what I'm playing against. You know, they said, I can't remember uh, – I think it was Diane Fromholtz. They asked her like, oh, that was a tough match. Uh, what would you have done if you lost to Renee? And she said, drowned myself. So in other words, like there wasn't a lot of respect for her amongst, especially in the women's tour. Uh, and she played that one year in 1978 when the Cleveland Nets moved to New Orleans well, nominally to New Orleans because they also played in St. Louis and right, right, yes, yes. They're so, so exactly. So they were kind of like a the they were also called the Sun Belt Nets. Yep. When they would play around and they would play like Lakeland, they play from Lakeland, Florida to El Paso, Texas. Well, there's a, there's a great there's a great clip on YouTube of a, of a full match from St. Louis in the Checker Dome. Right. Yeah. So, there's a lot of matches that went on in the Checker Dome. They tried to get a franchise in St. Louis quite a few times. One of it is because Jimmy Connors is from there. And uh, the other part is that they were uh, the checkerboard apparently, the checker dome apparently, maybe it later did, but they didn't have air conditioning. And uh, that was like a big issue. Like they had to have air conditioning. That was like a, a big thing at the time, you know, that you could come cool off and watch the match and not, you know all that kind of stuff. But, um, and the last commissioner, Butch Buchholz, uh, was based out of St. Louis and he, he had been trying to get a franchise there since 1974. So by the end of the league, yeah, they were playing probably about three or four matches a year in St. Louis at the checker dome. And, uh, they, uh, you know, they tried everywhere, you know, every one of these matches were like a trial balloon to see if there was any interest. Um, I think they drew, uh, 180 in Baton Rouge. Um, my favorite one is that 
Well, the first time they had brought the team, the Cleveland Nets with Bjorn Borg to New Orleans, they played there twice and they drew crowds of about 15,000. And they were like, we're not going back to Cleveland where we're drawing like, you know, 500. So, uh, and you know, New Orleans is so much better. So they decided to play their matches at the Superdome, which holds 80,000. And I guess they figured like, ah, you know, we got to cut on the, the rental and, uh, you know, if it's like 15,000 in an 80,000 stadium, you shoot it right. Not so bad. Right. Um, but they were drawn. There's one night where they drew 350 people in an 80,000 seat auditorium. I mean, it's described in some article I read as like a postage stamp like in the middle of this gigantic envelope or something like that. I can't remember exactly how they put it, but it was something like to that effect. Um, so, so what, I mean, so, so, so maybe to round it up here, because we could go on and yeah. on and on about so many uh, just idiosyncrasies about, about yeah. all this. What, what is your take on, uh, is the word legacy too strong of a word? What, 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 what of the story do you sort of take away from, from all of it. I mean, I hear ahead of its time. I hear gender equality. I hear, uh, you know, shaking up uh, established sports. I hear uh, 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 just business insanity uh, and expectations, dreams uh, leading versus uh, business sense. Um, I, what of all of this? Because the ideas, you know, seemed seem to be right for the time and, and arguably ahead of their time. And, and a lot of these things are uh, now with us in different forms, perhaps, uh, or is that giving it too much credit? No, I think uh, all great revolutions uh, take decades to gestate. And uh, just kind of like how, you know, I wrote this stuff about hardcore punk rock, you know, in hardcore in the days of hardcore punk rock, when that was happening, the biggest bands in the world were like Sticks and Journey. Well, not Journey. I don't want to say them because they're still popular. But it was like, you know, Sticks and Kansas and you know all that stuff. But where are they now? And look at the whole world is punk rock in terms of music, right? You know, they're all influenced by it or name drop it or you know, or it has such uh, a cachet that it never had. Uh, when it was happening uh, because it was so revolutionary or, you know, Mao Tse, if you study your politics, because we, we got into politics, you know, there's different kinds of revolutions, but there's many examples of people, uh, you know, Mao Tse Tung probably being the best example of a guy who like was just traveling the hinterlands for 30 years, spreading his message. And then one day he took over the entire country of China because the world came around to it that world came around to it. So um, I think it's one of those big ideas that uh, led us to the world, uh, left an imprimatur that uh, created the world that we live in today. And I don't feel like I'm really overstating that. Um, I think uh, my love of, you know, sports tragedy, uh, 
sports ineptness <laughs> um, cheering for uh, the underdog. Um, you know, yeah, of course, you know, that's, that kind of attitude all fits into what attracted me. But I think what um, impresses me is the gravity of what Billie Jean King tried to create in, in a sports league. I mean, it's, it's really impressive. How do you, how do you think, and I, I can't wait to get her on to have a conversation, but what do you think she feels about all of it? Do you feel that it was the beginning of something that continues on? Do you think she feels that it was something she'd rather forget? Or, or well, I think, I think the fact that she keeps, it keeps getting reintroduced with her name attached means that she can't get away from it. But, and I have had not had this conversation with her, but I would imagine that, uh, you know, it's kind of like beating your head against the wall a little bit of trying to convince the world that you had this, the right idea. Um, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean it more like, uh, you know, people who are great at things never give up, right? You know, they like never. One thing I've learned from uh, being around sports people uh, too is that um, they're so alpha. They're so competitive about everything. Like they're not going to throw in the towel on anything. Right. So uh, I'm friends with somebody who's a famous former NFL coach and, you know, uh, like, you know, he keeps score of the backgammon games you play with him. You know, I mean, they, they need to compete. You know, Billie Jean needs to compete because uh, she's a champion. That's what they do. You know, if you watch the Michael Jordan documentary, it's like kind of the same thing that you hear about Tom Brady too, which is they just come up with something to, mo- they're always motivated. They o- there's always a motivational tool, you know, and I can't, can't uh, help but feel that that's part of uh, uh, Billy's tenacity of keeping this going. I mean, on top of people giving their money. Um, well, I, I, I think but, one thing that's, that's missing from all that, and, and again, I, she, she can speak for herself, of course, and, yeah. and I, I would agree, right? That there, there's something magnetic about her, something iconic about her. Uh, and I guess the only thing in my mind that's missing from the current World Team Tennis and her story, which is rich and, 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 and full and, and so much uh, overcoming of, of obstacles and, 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 and championing for things is strangely the original story, the origin story of this world team tennis thing, right? Because, and, and it feels to me like in many respects, it's been a bit glossed over and, and it's very hazy, right? Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of stories, there's not a lot of books. Yeah. There's some YouTube clips and stuff, but there's not a lot of context. It seems out there that's in print and or alive, right? Perhaps until your book and or movie, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is maybe kind of the, the cool stuff here because I, it, it almost, in, in some respects, it's like the last piece maybe to sort of bring this story full circle because 
w- without a better understanding of what this was for four or five years in the 70s, you, people won't maybe even fully give her, especially current generations, the full credit, frankly, for what she was pioneering and or represented, as we sort of argued, in, on multiple fa- in, in multiple facets. Farcical as the, the enterprise wound up becoming, right? There are seeds of uh, uh, good and, and lasting things there that were kind of sown there, right? In a sort of pre, if you will, revolutionary, to use your term, kind yep. of uh, context, right? And without understanding the, the, the curiousness of all of it, uh, it just seems to me like that's the missing piece to this full story. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> what can I say? I, I think that's correct. I think uh, um, it's, uh, I tried to tie this all together. Um, <clears throat> it's not just a, a bunch of statements of facts, you know, it's not just, you know, a, a drivel of, um, you know, dates and and numbers, um, you know, I'm, the story of a socially minded uh, sports league. Uh, I mean, I guess you could draw, I guess it kind of got done a little bit with the new NBA when they played in the bubble for the 2020 season um, of some sort of activism or what you see on the back of a helmet at a NFL game now. But I think that, uh, idea of sports activism begins 1974 Billy Jean King world team tennis. And I think uh, it's kind of the blueprint for um, um, trying to make a difference in the world through an athletic pursuit. I mean, it's kind of like a, people take that for granted now, but I think it was, uh, it was just so radical and ahead of its time that I think that 1974, uh, you know, that, that what happened 40 plus years ago uh, is, is worthy of examination as a, as, a, as, a, as a movement, not just a sport, it was a movement. All righty, our thanks to Stephen. Fascinating conversation and hopefully the first of uh, a bunch more around world team tennis. So the various flavors and versions of it, but certainly that original 1970s version is probably the most uh, enigmatic of all of them. And hopefully, frankly, a couple of conversations with uh, some folks a little bit more directly involved. We'd uh, we'd love to chat about uh, that with uh, with Jeannie Buss. We uh, hope to have her uh, relatively soon. Uh, she obviously the now uh champion owner of the Los Angeles Lakers, but uh, back in the day when she was just, oh, uh, you know, a teenager, actually, she was involved in uh, some aspects of her dad's uh, efforts with world team tennis with the LA strings, uh, a bunch probably to explore there, uh, hopefully with Jeannie in the, uh, in the weeks ahead, knock on wood. Uh, we'd love a uh, dream guest, of course, would be Elton John um, to talk about not only the, uh, uh, the, the Philadelphia Freedom song, of course, which was written for uh, her pal, his pal, excuse me, uh, uh, Billie Jean King, uh, uh, and the success, or at least the uh, 
<laughs> the the beginnings of the success of, of the league and, and the Philadelphia Freedoms franchise. And of course, we'd love to have Billie Jean King as well. Uh, she's still quite active uh, in uh, the current iteration of World Team Tennis is uh, obviously the uh, the spokesperson for and is, is inextricably tied uh, to the history of, of, of the league from its very earliest days to what exists of it today. Uh, any of those folks and others, frankly, we'd love to have uh, as guests to talk further about world team tennis. Fascinating conversations, hopefully uh, yet to come. Uh, let us see here. We uh, want to tell you that the book, again, is called Bustin' Balls. Uh, depending on when you're listening to this episode, it comes out uh, November 24th, we think. It is published by Feral House, F-E-R-A-L. Uh, if uh, you're hearing this before that date, you can purchase it. Excuse me, you can pre-purchase it. Yes, pre-order it. That's what we're trying to say. Uh, on Amazon, and maybe perhaps some of the other booksellers as well will allow you to pre-order it. Uh, if uh, you'd like to uh, give us a few shekels of love uh, by uh, buying the book through our link on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, well, we're not going to stop you. Uh, and let's see, if you're buying it uh, after November 24th, well, it's available then. Now go for it. Uh, we have uh, seen a, 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 an advanced copy of it. It is it's great. It's uh, it's a keeper. It's got great uh, imagery and uh, it's great detailed uh, stuff about just about every uh, team that was part of that original World Team Tennis uh, League, uh, including some that never really made it to the court. Uh, it's all great stuff. And of course, the movie is yet to come. Uh, that comes out, we think, in the spring or so, uh, knock on wood, of, uh, of 2021. Uh, and um, we will keep you abreast of when uh, and where and how that is available uh, when uh, it uh, it comes out. If you want to keep on uh, top of that uh, yourselves, as well as all the other great stuff that uh, Stephen Blush uh, is involved with or has put out there, uh, American Hardcore, that uh, that punk documentary, which is awesome, and a bunch of other stuff that Stephen's done and will be doing over over time. His website uh, is stephenblush.com. That's Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, Blush. Dot com. So bookmark that, too, and uh, you will be up to date on all of his doings uh, as well. Our website, if you're in the mood to continue to bookmark stuff, is goodseatstillavailable.com. And of course, that's where every single stinking episode of this show uh, resides. If uh, your podcast feed fails you for some reason, uh, there is uh, always hope. You can always backstop your way to any episode that you may have missed or frankly you want to discover a new or perhaps for the first time that's again goodseatsstillavailable.com you'll find all the old episodes you'll find all the links to the various media that folks might have uh, been uh, bringing uh, as part of those episodes are all there for you of course all of our social media links are found there too but you can do that directly if you'd like just uh, follow us on Instagram at goodseatsstillavailable find us on Twitter at goodseatsstill find us on Facebook. We're there somewhere too. Uh, if you want to send us email, you can do that at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And yeah, we got a newsletter that we send out every Sunday or so to keep you abreast of what's going to be the uh, following week's episode. Just uh, search around the website and find the link and just quickly give us your email and your name and uh, away you will go onto our list uh, for those alerts uh, ongoing. Our pal Jerry Payne once again coming through. Thank you so much, sir, for your editorial expertise. It's Jerry Payne Audio Excellence, and uh, indeed, Audio Excellence once again 
this week. And of course, we are not going to leave you without uh, a song, of course, that's related to this week's episode. And of course, it's going to be Philadelphia Freedom. It can't be any other song, right? Uh, that came out, of course, in 1975. We all know it went to number one, Elton John, one of his uh, seminal songs and, and one of his more popular tunes. He and Bernie Taupin, of course, composing it together for uh, Elton's pal, Billie Jean King, of course. And uh, instead of just giving you the regular song we've heard over and over again, we're going to give you a live version, something a little different. This is Elton John singing live to his track on Soul Train from 1975. Here it is, and uh, we appreciate you listening. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. I used to be a rolling stone, you know. If the cause was right, I'd leave to find a answer on the road. I used to be a heartbeat for someone. The time will change Yes, I say The more my work gets done Oh